I am here with Jonathan Cristal. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here, Matamor. So you wrote this remarkable book called What They Don't Teach Teens, Life Safety Skills for Teens and the Adults Who Care From Them. And it's really a remarkable book for anyone who wants to learn practical life safety skills that really aren't taught anywhere else. They're not taught in schools, not taught by parents oftentimes. And it really is a book that I wish I had read as a teen. So I'd like to just talk with you through some of the scenarios that today's teens may find themselves in. Things like police encounters, knowing your rights, staying safe online, navigating you know, early sexuality, robberies, all of these things that are super vital and can be life and death decisions, but that are oftentimes not actually talked about as far as what you should do in those situations. So I think maybe a good place for us to start would be to say a little bit about your background and what compelled you to write this book. Sure. Well, um, let me start with what I hold most dear. Uh, I'm a husband and father to three sons. One of them's a tween and two of them are teenagers. Uh, my day job uh, is not writing the book. It's actually, I'm a full-time prosecutor for the city of LA. For about 20 years, I've been doing that job. So every day, I see mistakes that people make. Um, some of them are good people, good young people. And, you know, no one's uh, oblivious or no one's above making uh, an error in judgment here and there. And I made a lot of those errors as a young person. I was a troubled teen growing up in L.A. I made lots of bad decisions. I was a good kid who got pivoted off path. And um, <clears throat> I just made some, you know, decisions that uh, some of them I was held accountable for or asked about as an adult. So some of them did follow me into adulthood. Um, and I wrote the book, um, really what my wife, Lisa said to me, we were literally just watching TV one night, this about five years ago. And she says, Hey, it's time to teach our eldest son about sexual consent. I was like, yeah, okay. Thanks for asking me. Now is the time, you know, before he starts, uh, you know, engaging in any sort of sexual activity. And it got me thinking, well, one, when I grew up, it, it, this the standard for sexual consent is no means no. That is far out of date. Now the standard is uh, yes means yes, affirmative consent. And it got me thinking, okay, well, what else do I need to teach all of my sons? You know, they're going to take how many history classes, math classes, English classes, standardized tests. You know it traditional education, but when are they going to teach my son or my sons about affirmative sexual consent? Well, they're not. Um, they're, you know, their rights when dealing with the police, they're not. And what makes sexual harassment, what acts, and so on and so forth. And so I started looking for the book I wanted. I started looking for the resource that I wanted, one resource that would teach, you know, young people that why does their digital footprint matter? Why do you have to start thinking about that the moment you log on and so on and so forth? And there wasn't uh, a book. And so my wife kind of strong-armed me into writing it, knowing that I could do it based on, I'm also, I should also mention, I, I teach sexual violence prevention. Right. So with my skill set, she suggested I, I write the book and five years later, it's ready to come out. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, I've read one of your reviews that said, you know, they have the book What to Expect When You're Expecting for ki- for babies, yeah. but they don't yeah. have the equivalent for teens uh, until now. And it's kind of amazing when you think of how humans evolved really were similar to the humans that were, you know, running around on the plains and, you know, doing all these crazy battles and stuff like that. So when you're growing up, oftentimes it's hard to know where the boundaries are. And I know for myself, like when I grew up and I got a license, my parents told me there were speeding tickets. But until I got that first speeding ticket for myself, it was hard to really think of it as real. I'm like, okay, so a lot of times teens, they do push the boundaries because that's how people learn. But sometimes they can have irreversible effects if you make the wrong decision. So I love that your book sort of gives that knowledge so teens know what to do in certain situations. So let's start with police encounters and knowing your rights with police. Let's say I'm driving my car and I get pulled over by a police officer. And to my knowledge, I haven't done anything wrong. What is the right approach? Should I get my you know, insurance and driver's license right away? Should I wait for the police officer? Do I have to answer his questions? What's the right approach for a teen uh, to stay safe in that encounter? Well, first, uh, I can give you an example, a real life example that happened to me uh, and my eldest son a few months ago. Uh, So he's, he's 18 now, he just turned 18. So he's 17 at the time. I'm driving, he's in the passenger seat. Now he's never been pulled over before as a driver. And this time he had ever, this was the first time he had ever had a police encounter uh, when anyone was pulled over and happened to be the driver, his father. The, um, it was a good traffic stop. I, I violated the law, nothing major, but it was a good stop. And the officer walks up to me, I roll down my window, and before the officer could say something, my son started letting him have it. And both of us, the officer and I, at the exact same time, be quiet, don't talk, this isn't your place. And I just thought to myself, oh gosh, I'm glad this was with me because he hadn't read that chapter yet. Mm-hmm. So, so but, but before talking about the do's and don'ts, I wanna be very clear that there are certainly situations where you know <clears throat> the protocols that I lay out in, in my book for what to do and what not to do when you're stopped, what your rights are um, under the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, there are many situations, particularly for people of color, where those protocols mean nothing. That um, an officer, in some occasions, I don't think most officers, um, but there will be officers who, no matter what you say or do, they're going to do what they want. And in some situations, may, may, may uh, invoke violence on people that is unwarranted and, and downright criminal. Um, so particularly for people of color, <clears throat> the police interactions can be harder to navigate. So my my chapters on the police, they're not about, uh, you know, saying these things will always work. Um, But these are best practices for all people, for all people, um, regardless of your color, regardless of your background. So one of the things, so I I lay out about like 15 things to do when you're stopped in your, or, or not do when you're stopped in your car. I have another section, what to do when you're stopped on foot. And essentially, you you don't want to, if it's at nighttime, you want to turn on your dome light. You want the officer to know when he or she's walking up to your car that you are not a risk. 
The two most dangerous things police officers do, one, respond to domestic violence call, and two, pull people over. They just don't know what they're walking into. And so if you're at night, you turn on your dome light, you keep your hands on the wheel. So when the officer is approaching, they can see you have your hands on the wheel, whether it's day or night, you put your hands on the wheel. Um, you don't want to reach for your insurance, your driver's license, your registration before the officer asks you to. So don't start reaching for things because, you know, one of the things officers are afraid of, and and, and I get it, this, the citizenry is off in some uh, times uh, more in certain communities than others. They may be afraid of the police. Well, unfortunately, um, you know, police sometimes are afraid of what they might encounter with someone they pull over. And the backdrop, at least one of the backdrops to that is there's so many guns in our country. Mm. There's, over, there's more guns than people. There's over 300 million guns. So officers always expect that no matter what the person looks like, no matter what they've been doing or the reason they're being pulled over is they suspect the person may have a gun, rightly or wrongly. So you have to be very, very careful. And I lay it all out in my book. Totally. Yeah, and it's interesting the example you bring up of your son because I've noticed that the temperature has really heated up over the last few months where many people are, I think I saw this chart which showed that the public opinion several months ago was a lot of people just sort of had like a moderate opinion, whereas now a lot of those moderates have turned into extreme opinions, whether it's extreme support for police or extremely against the police. And that seems like a recipe for danger where if you feel like this cop is a bad guy who's doing wrong things and I'm in the right by verbally assaulting him. And, you know, that may put yourself at risk. On the other hand, I don't want to, you know, say there have definitely been some terrible things that, that cops have done. But you have this great line in the book where you say a cop has never lost an argument in the streets. The arguments are for the courtroom. So I think that's, a, that's a really valuable piece of information. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because that's uh, <clears throat> been upsetting to me in my household because my two eldest sons, 18, just turned 18 and 16, over the last couple months with, um, you know, police killing Americans, unwarranted, unjustified, downright criminal acts. And it's not new, but there has been a cultural awakening. And I talk about racial injustice in my book. And this book was written, at least those chapters, you know, well before the George Floyd killing, which was just one more example of police brutality. My sons, my eldest son said to me over the last few months, they hate police or the police suck or the police, they just kill you. And that hurts me because mm -hmm. I am very supportive of law enforcement. Um, law enforcement has to change in this country. Racial injustice obviously is a terrible plague. On society um, and some you know communities they're terribly afraid of the police and maybe they should be but by and large it's my belief that, that you can't paint all police with the same brush there are some people there are some police officers who are not fit to wear the badge but there are many who at least as far as I'm concerned who are fit to wear the badge who carry that badge with great honor who are brave and put themselves in the line of fire I'm not saying that's the case in every community uh, and obviously every officer, but to hear my son say, uh, make blanket statements of how they don't like the police is, is upsetting to me because um, 
I work every day with the police. Every day I'm on the job, I work with the police. And certainly some are better than others. But the vast majority take their job you know, very seriously and treat people fairly regardless of the color of their skin. Totally. And what would you think is the right approach to create a better system where police and the citizenry are able to have more trust? Is it, is it a, a question of training? Is it a question of education of what to do in these encounters? Is, is, it an, is it a viable solution to defund and sort of start from scratch? Like, how do you think about the best way to fix the system? That's a, that's a great question. And we would, we, you know, we would need at least an entire hour to maybe answer <laughs> right, that. Right. And there are people way more qualified than I am, but, but let me just <clears throat> look at it more holistically. Um, to me, it's not just about policing. The criminal justice system needs radical reform, okay? And a huge part of that is racial injustice, not, not just police brutality and racial injustice when it comes to policing, but also when it comes to sentencing by judges, when it, when, it, when it comes to the granting of parole, the ability to make bail, there are so many problems with the criminal justice system. And many of those failings disproportionately impact people of color, the poor, uh, people who are disabled. Um, when it comes to policing itself, um, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is, you know, the United States is an outlier compared to other high income nations when it comes to policing. And from my perspective and from many, and I'm not an academic, but from many academics' perspectives as well, the number one <clears throat> way that we are such an outlier is, is as it relates to police violence inflicted against the, the people that they're policing, the citizenry. Because the United States, <clears throat> police in the United States, kill citizens, shoot and kill or otherwise kill citizens in our country, and I mean anyone who's residing regardless of you know, documented status and all that's irrelevant. Um, <clears throat> they kill the citizenry um, by 25, 50, 100 times over other high-income nations. And it's people of all colors. Now, again, people of color uh, disproportionately are affected by police violence. But way too many people of any color uh, are being killed by the police. And I don't want to, that's not directly attributable to the police. They play a part in it. But again, another part is they expect everyone to have a gun. Part of it's training. Mm -hmm. Part of it's they don't have, they may not have the de-escalation uh, de training or the tools at their disposal. Part of it is a, a certain culture within police departments. But a lot needs to be fixed in policing, obviously police brutality, obviously racial injustice. But my overarching theme of change that's needed is the criminal justice system in its entirety. Yeah, definitely. I have a couple other questions just about practically on the ground if you're in a situation with a police officer. So there's the question of can you remain silent or do you have to answer their questions is one that I've, I've had a lot of people think about. And also... If you uh, are you allowed to film the police officer and even if you're allowed, is that a good idea? So you could take the same situation sure. of a cop comes up and asks you questions. Should you can you be filming them and do you have to answer their questions? And then I guess the other one is if they ask to search the trunk of your vehicle, in what cases are you compelled to comply versus uh, do you not have to comply? Sure. So what I'm going to relate to you 
is what I've taught my own sons. I actually wrote this book, as I mentioned when we began, really to educate my own sons. And then it just turns out that a lot of parents and young people really are longing for this information. So I've told my sons, you never, and it's the law, you never have to answer questions of the police. Never. You have to identify yourself in some situations. But other than identifying uh, yourself, <clears throat> you don't have to answer any questions. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Okay. And <clears throat> what I've told my own boys is, you know, feel free to talk to the police, answer their questions. <clears throat> but the moment you think you get that feeling in your gut that they suspect you've done something wrong, don't you say another word, not one word. Other people um, choose not to say anything to the police. How are you doing? Fine. Where were you tonight? Sorry, officer, I'm not going to answer that question. Now, um, will some officers be fine with that and just say, you know, what is your mom or dad a lawyer or why are you giving me a hard time? Um, and they'll just move on, write you the ticket or do their investigation. Others, certainly, and, and this can be truer for people of color once again, they will take great offense to that. So, and they may get angry. Generally, I don't think most, my experience as a prosecutor um, seeing uh, police interact in many, many different communities. And as a troubled teen, uh, I was pulled over many, many times. I was arrested for a nonviolent offense. And again, I, I understand my situation was different. I'm not a person of color. Um, but I do believe that most officers will not, you know, uh, inflict violence on someone for not answering questions. But of course, you get the wrong officer uh, at the wrong time, anything could happen. But generally, you never have to answer questions. Um, when it comes to searches, uh, police, most police searches are done by consent. So there are situations where an officer doesn't need consent to search your, your trunk. And, and, you know, those are all laid out in the book. Um, but most searches, whether it's your pockets, your purse, you, you know, the vehicle compartment in, in your car, the, the trunk, anywhere, your house, most searches are done by consent, meaning the officers ask for permission and are given it. Now, the way they're asking, you may not think they're asking because they're probably not gonna say, hey, Madam Moore, I think you may have evidence of criminality in your pocket, in your jeans, and I, you don't have to let me search it, but can I please have permission to search it? Is that okay? That will never happen. It will right. be something more along the lines of, hey, uh, what do you got in your pockets? Anything I need to be worried about? No, officer, there's nothing to be worried about. Okay, great. And then you don't care if I search you. And next thing you know, you know, a search happens. So um, so <clears throat> some people uh, will consent to have officers search their cars if they have nothing uh, to hide. Uh, others won't ever consent to a search, um, mm -hmm. even if they have nothing to hide. Um, and obviously, I can't Again, I keep right. I guess that, I guess issue. if you're concerned that maybe the, they'll plant evidence, then you wouldn't want yeah. them to search. Right. Uh, and that's a real fear for some people. I get that. Um, and <clears throat> I've told my sons never to consent to a search. Hmm. I told them that I said, you all can make your own decisions. But it's my opinion that you should never consent to a search for a whole lot of reasons. Some of them I lay out in the book. Um, but there are situations where again, particularly for people of color, that if you refuse a search, you may trigger anger in that police officer. And I'm not saying it will always go as planned. I make that very clear. 
But this, these are things you can consider. These are things you, you know, you can make an informed decision about. And when you know your rights, um, if things don't go as they're supposed to go, assuming there's not extreme violence, um, but if your rights are violated, you're going to know it, and you can take some action after the fact. Yeah. So let's talk about that because most everyone knows about the First and the Second Amendment. Hardly anyone, it seems, knows about the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment. So maybe you could just say a little bit about that and what people's yeah. rights are. Yeah. So under the Fourth Amendment, it's about police searches and government searches. And uh, it specifically says searches have to be reasonable. Mm. And so put another way, police searches uh, or governmental searches um, cannot be unreasonable. And so I lay out clearly in the book what's reasonable, what's unreasonable. And um, depending on you know what's happening in real time when you're interfacing with the police, it's pretty darn simple the way I've presented it in the book. And you can say, hey, you're violating my rights right now. Well, I don't have to do that under the Fourth Amendment. I don't have to let you search my purse. Um, and I think most of the time, officers will respect those rights. Other times they won't. But at least you know what your rights are and can make an informed decision. Fifth Amendment, you never have to talk to the police other than, as I mentioned before, in some situations you have to identify yourself if they suspect you committed a crime. Right. And that's that you can't that. testify against yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be a witness against yourself. Right. And um, what I say in the book, what I've also told my friends, and this you know, circles back to something we talked about a few minutes ago, you know, the police aren't your enemy. At least some people uh, may feel they are, but not my perspective. The police may not be your enemy, but they're not your friend. And, um, you know, don't think you can talk your way out of a police officer doing an investigation. It's never going to happen. Like you mentioned before, the line in the book, they've never lost an argument on the street, not once. And you cannot talk your way out of an officer doing their job, his or her job. And it's very likely when you're trying to do that, you will incriminate yourself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got to weigh those things, whether you want to talk at all. And it's a very personal decision. Right. And just one other follow up on the searches question. In what case would it be reasonable to search? Like, let's say the officer sees a red yeah. solo cup in the back of your car. Would that be enough reason? Or let's say that the officer smells weed, even if maybe you don't have weed in the car. Like, what would would the, would either of those situations constitute reasonable search? Maybe you know it's very fact specific, um, but essentially, when it comes to a, a vehicle stop. Um, if the officer has a reasonable basis to believe there's evidence of a crime in the car, they can search it. No mm. search warrant needed, no consent needed. So the officer pulls, not you over, pulls somebody <laughs> over and smells weed. Um, they can search that, uh, the, the passenger compartment, the driver compartment, the backseat. They can search the car. Now, whether that would extend to the trunk, maybe or maybe not. Um, uh, so, you know, was it? Did the officer smell marijuana that that was burning? That that you know, um, well that 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 ha that may not uh, give probable cause or a, a reasonable suspicion of criminality to search the trunk. If there's a different odor for you know pounds and pounds, I don't know this, I don't know the mm -hmm. odor obviously, but pounds and pounds of uh, stored and transported marijuana, that may be a different smell. If they smell that, that may be 
reasonable basis to search the trunk. So it's very fact specific. Right. But once an officer decides to, to search your car, you can't stop it. There's mm -hmm. nothing you can do in real time. And what about the question of filming? Like, let's say you're concerned, okay, you know, this officer says they smelled something, they're searching the car with or without my consent. I'm concerned maybe they'll plan evidence or maybe they'll do something wrong. So I want to film it so I have some evidence that may help me later on in court. Is that a good idea? Can the officer say stop filming or can they only say like, you know, back up and don't be so close while you're filming? Yeah. So yes, it is completely lawful to film the police. But what you can't do is interfere with the police officer conducting his or her investigation. So yes, if as a suspect or someone who's detained, someone who's witnessing another one, someone else in a police encounter gets too close to the officer, invades their space, makes the officer fear for their personal safety, that's not going to fly. Um, but it is lawful. Now, whether someone should do it, I leave that to individuals to decide. I have seen it can trigger angers in some officers. Mm -hmm. In some situations, again, particularly with, with people of color, um, people who are disabled, people who are poor, um, that can, uh, they, the officer may retaliate physically. Obviously, that is against the law, and that those officers should be prosecuted and disciplined and whatever else, uh, you know, the, depending on the facts. Um, but essentially, I have seen many situations where an officer incorrectly tells someone who's recording them to turn off the camera. Mm. And, you know, maybe the off there are situations, I haven't seen it in my city uh, in which I work, but there are situations where an officer may not be sufficiently trained or even know that people are allowed to film them. Other times they know it, but they're just going to, you know, violate people's rights and tell them to turn off the camera. If an officer tells someone to turn off the camera, they have to decide at that moment, if their physical safety is in jeopardy or might be in jeopardy. And if it might be in jeopardy, uh, you know, someone will have to decide if they want to continue filming. Very personal decisions. Right. Um, but yes, you can film the police. Yeah, there is that recent feature from the latest version of iOS with iPhones where you can say, Siri, I'm being pulled over, yeah. and it'll automatically yeah. activate the microphone and the camera. So yeah. that might be a great solution because you're not triggering the anger of the cop by like holding a phone in their face, but you still are subtly recording the encounter. So you have some evidence. Right. You don't have video with that, but mm -hmm. at least just having audio is better than nothing. Right. Well, I think, I mean, depending on where your phone is, like if you have it on the dashboard, I guess they would get right. video, but yeah, not as good as you controlling it's, it's the something. camera. Still something. It's yeah. Something. But, but, but yeah, I think what you said earlier is very true. I think, you know, teens, young people today really uh, have very strong feelings about the police. And often that's negative. And that's unfortunate because when communities are afraid of the police, and at times they should be, I get that. It's worse for them. It's worse for the police. It's worse for everybody. So there's a lot of change that's needed when it comes to policing and criminal justice. Definitely. And... There was this there's this interesting urban legend that a bunch of kids that, you know, growing up with believe that I think is false, but I'd like to just say it so that you can debunk it. And that is that if you're dealing with an undercover cop, 
they have to identify themselves as an undercover cop. So if you can say like, are you a cop? They have to answer it. So can the police lie to you? And what's the deal with that myth? (laughs) Okay. That's so funny. Cause I heard that saying I'm much older than you. I'm 49. And we heard that too growing up (laughs) and, um, police are allowed to lie to you. Uh, so they know they don't have to tell you, Oh, you got me. Yes. I'm a cop. No, (laughs) they don't ever have to. And they can pretty much lie to, to, um, you about anything. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book, and and again, these are very personal decisions. Families have to decide what's right for them. What's their comfort level? What's What are their feelings about the police? Do they trust the police or or not? Um, But one thing I've made very clear is that the police can lie to you um, and they're actually quite good at it. Um, And, you know, I've told my own sons, and I write about this in the book, that you know you have to decide for yourself. You know, as you as you grow older, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with. But once again, if the police suspect you of doing something, I wouldn't talk, and they may keep talking to you. Um, the whole thing about your Miranda rights. People watch too much TV where they think um, that you know. As soon as the the police want to start questioning you, they have to read you your Miranda rights, and that's not true. Your Miranda rights, you know, you have the right to remain silent, you have the right to an attorney if you can't afford one, and so on. Those are only required to be read to a suspect once they've been arrested and the police want to question them. Before someone's arrested, the police can question them as much as they want. And people sink their own ships, and the police are fully able to lie to people during that questioning. And even once they read you your Miranda rights, and if you waive them, they are allowed to lie to you. So they can say, hey, hey, Madam Moore, your buddy Jonathan, who's in the other room being interrogated by my partner, just said you did the crime. He's diming you off right now. You better tell us right now what you did before he gets the deal. And Jonathan, your buddy, may have his lips sealed and say, give me my lawyer. But the cops don't have to tell you. Right. And in fact, I can tell you the exact opposite. That's the classic prisoner's dilemma. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in that case, staying to the truth is always best if you didn't do anything wrong. But if you did do something wrong, staying silent until you speak with a lawyer is the right approach. Sure. That's one approach. You know, I've spoke to other parents who tell their kids, look, whether you did wrong or, or, or not, tell the police, own mm. up to it. Um, that's not my perspective. I get that perspective. Um, and, and what I, how I relate that to my own son is I say, look, I don't want you making your situation worse until we know what your situation is. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that if you've gotten yourself into trouble and have done wrong, you will pay the price. We will cooperate with the police. You will own up to what you, you've done but not until I get the facts. They're not getting a walk because I've gotten involved or a lawyer's getting involved, but I don't want them sinking their own ship. And I don't want making their situation worse. Um, and sometimes the police will allow someone to do that and will, you know, um, at, at times put cases on people that shouldn't be put on them. So my sons won't escape justice, but don't make your situation worse. You know, keep your mouth shut. Totally. Now, the last question in this section that I have is how to 
end a police interaction. So let's say you're in that no man's land where they haven't read you your Miranda rights left yet, but they keep asking you a bunch of questions. You're feeling uncomfortable. You want the situation to end. What should you say in order to make that situ encounter end? So there's some uh, encounters that you can't end until a police officer chooses to end it, pretty much. Um, but there are times where a police officer is having a um, consensual conversation with you. Now, the person being questioned may not think it's consensual, but it actually is. So let's just give an example. An officer stops you on the street. Hey, how you doing tonight? What's going on? Where are you going? What are you up to? If the officer thinks you've done, you've committed a crime, but is just talking you up, you can't leave while the officer does the investigation. But the person who's being questioned doesn't know what the officer knows. So when the officer's just saying, hey, how you doing? <clears throat> the person being questioned, who hasn't done anything, let's say, um, says I'm fine. And the officer doesn't, doesn't think they committed a crime, but keeps questioning them. Well, where are you going? What are you, what are you doing? If the officer doesn't think that person's committed a crime, all those questions uh, or it's up to the person whether to answer them. It's it's whether it's up to the person whether to stay, because the person if the if the officer isn't conducting uh, an investigation, the person doesn't have to stay. So that we call that a consensual encounter. So essentially, the person can say the question goes on for five minutes, three minutes, ten minutes. At a certain point, the person being questioned can say, "Officer, am I free to go or am I being detained?" Yeah. And, the officer, and what that means is, officer, do you think I've committed a crime? Because if you think I've committed a crime and you're detaining me, I know I can't leave. But if this is a consensual encounter, and you're just chatting me up and trying to get me to say something. I'm allowed to go and I want to go. Am I free to go, officer, or am I being detained? So if the officer doesn't have you, uh, isn't suspecting that you've done a committed a crime, uh, he has he or she has to let you go. Now, let me be clear. Just because they have to let you go doesn't mean they're going to let you go. Um, but many will. But there'll be some pushback. Well, why do you want to go? Where do you want to go? I'm just trying to have a conversation with you. Why are you giving me a hard time? I'm just doing, just trying to make nice. And if that's what they do and you want to leave, officer, with all due respect, I'm just trying to find out. Am I free to go or am I being detained? And I've seen situations where, Someone has to say that three, four, five times, but eventually the officer relents. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to go that way. Sometimes it won't, and sometimes it could get, could get bad. So you've got to use your best judgment in real time if you think you're safe asserting that question. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important phrase to remember. And yeah, definitely, it seems like maybe you answer their questions up to a point, but then once it starts to feel uncomfortable, then you know maybe it's important to say that phrase. Right, if they keep talking to you, you can ask, hey, am I free to go? Yeah, totally. Awesome, well, let's, I wanna talk about the other two parts of your book. And you know, one part that I think is really important for everyone to know is about sextortion and revenge porn. And so I want to give a couple scenarios and ask your advice on how one should deal with them if they're in that situation. So let's say you're in a relationship, you know, you're a young teen, you're deeply in love, but 
you break up and then the other person threatens to post nudes of you online that you had shared in confidence unless you keep the relationship going. How should you respond and, and what are your rights, uh, what rights protect you from that sextortion and, and what should you do or how would you advise someone to respond? Yeah, sextortion um, is just one of the most horrific crimes uh, perpetrated against young people and essentially it's, it's, it's sexual blackmail, it's online sexual blackmail. So I've either obtained a nude from you during relationship <clears throat> Or I, you know, hacked your account and or I catfished you online and I have a nude that way. And if you don't do what I'm going to tell you to do, I'm going to release it to the world. And it's a crime of unspeakable brutality. The average age of a sextortion victim is 15 years old. According to the Department of Justice, the fastest growing crime online against young people. So it's just unfortunate. It's something a lot of people don't know about. Um, <clears throat> So in the situation you're describing, I'd, I'd even take it <clears throat> a few steps back. I know people exchange nudes. I, I, I'm not that old, okay? Um, I get it uh, on multiple levels. The problem um, that I think, you know, well, the problem or the issue I see over and over and over is that, you know, <clears throat> people can react really badly after a breakup in ways that we didn't expect them to 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 react or to do things we never thought they would do i mean you know we know this uh especially as you have relationships or you see your friends in relationships people can be downright nasty hostile and, and engage in violence criminal acts um so i would just say before i would take a step back and say before you send a nude i'm not telling people not to share nudes it's not my place um, I don't tell people what to do in the book. I give them information. Do with it what you want. Now you have the information. Make an informed decision, whatever that is. But I would caution them about uh, about sharing news. Um, of course, it can. If you're under 18, it's a serious crime related to child pornography. That's it, how it's known: child mm -hmm. pornography. Um, but it's really non-consensual um, pornography, um, and um, and just think you know what it could lead to revenge porn which we'll talk about it could lead to sextortion yeah and no one thinks it will happen to them so in your situation um i go to the fbi i go to my local police department sextortion is a crime it could be multiple different crimes and if someone was threatening me with it to release my nude i go to law enforcement and i'm not saying it will go perfectly i'm not saying you know some police departments are better situated or more willing to investigate those types of crimes some take it more seriously than others um but i would i would take it to law enforcement if i were a young person i'd also talk to a trusted adult you mm -hmm. know probably actually before i went to the to, to the police or law enforcement fbi i would i would talk to a trusted person now i hope young people's trusted uh persons are their parents but it, it wasn't for me um, I, I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents, but there were other trusted adults that I could find, and I hope other people can, because you really don't want to navigate this alone. You really want to have someone to talk to about it to help you kind of figure things out. So that's really, uh, I would talk to law enforcement, but even before, I would find a trusted adult to kind of share my situation with. Definitely. And to your point about sending nudes, I, I think there's a misconception also that if you send it through certain platforms, it's safe, like Snapchat, uh, or you know there are other platforms that 
say they prevent screen recording and that kind of thing. But the reality is you can always just get a separate device to record it. So anything you send, you pretty much need to just expect that it can be everywhere online as soon as it's left your device. Yeah, and I get it. None of us think these things are going to happen to us. We all think, you know, I had a girlfriend. I was in love when I was 16. I thought my relationship was going to go on forever. I really did in that moment. I thought, well, this is it. We're together. Things are always going to be like this. And we know breakups happen. We know that many teenage relationships will not stand the test of time. That's just human nature. So, and again, some people will react really, really terribly when there's a breakup. Yeah, definitely. And let's say, so to go into some other situations that are similar, let's say it's someone you don't know who just found your compromising images or videos and they try to get you to give them money. Uh, you know, you have some cases in the book that are pretty compelling. Is, is there anything different about that situation where you would want to respond differently or is it a similar sort of thing where you talk to a trusted adult you go to the FBI, and maybe you can help far more uh, victim survivors through that if it's someone who does this as, as a pattern of behavior. Well, you know, if, if I've been solicited, you know, online, you know, I've gotten the email saying, I have your password, I, I hacked into your uh, computer, um, I have images of you, you know, doing things you shouldn't be doing. And I know that's nonsense because one, I wasn't doing anything I wasn't supposed to be doing. And I know these scams, people mm -hmm. are always sending up these, these phishing scams. So um, send me money. So I ignored it because sending that kind of email to law enforcement, I, I don't think would do much. Uh, I don't think that's something that's gonna be their top priority. I think they're dealing more with, with people who have been victimized uh, mm -hmm. rather than, than solicited. Um, but if it was something more specific, if someone had hit me up and there was like a, a social media account I could track it to, or mm. someone I maybe could identify, I would definitely, uh, I wouldn't call 911 about it, but I'd report it to the police. Every police station has a non-emergency number. Um, because uh, I, think, I think what you may be referring to um, is a story I tell in my book where, uh, a true story that a that, uh, LA sex crimes prosecutor uh, told me about um, that he handled that he took down this sextortionist who had multiple victims. But the only, the, the first uh, thread that unraveled there was that uh, uh, like a 14, 15 year old girl got a text message from someone saying that um, he was gonna kill her dog unless she sent news. And he knew the name of her dog. Mm. And somehow he had gathered that maybe in her social media. And so she was so afraid for her for her dog's safety, and of course for her safety too, when someone's making those types of threats, she showed her mom, her mom went to the police, the police went to the prosecutor, and they took down the sextortionist and found other victims, so. Yeah, that's a really good story. And there's also the 80-60-50 the rule that I thought was really useful, just, just about being aware of the dangers, so maybe you could uh, talk about that briefly. Yeah, so they, they, um, there's, you know, I have four chapters on sexual violence and misconduct. And one of the chapters is on sexual consent. And again, this is how my book, the idea for my book started. And there are so many myths 
um, related to sexual violence and particularly rape. It's astonishing how many myths there are. And I just, as I did research and, and I've been teaching over the years on this topic, I've just come across more and more of them. And they're not just believed by young people. In fact, I found young people are less likely to believe the rape myths than people my age because we were we just didn't know any better. Your generation, um, they're generally are so much more well informed. Now there's still going to be myths that are believed because you just can't help it. We just we're poisoned with this information from all through you know in society and our peer groups. Um, but as it relates to the myth you're talking about, it's who the rapist is. And you know, when we visualize, when we think about rape, if you just randomly said to someone, what do you think about when you think about rape? Many, many people would picture like, you know, the, the guy lurking in the alley or in the parking lot, he's got a knife or a gun, he's, you know, maybe has a mask, I don't know. And he's following a woman to her car and he's got that old creepy white van with the sliding door. And, that's often what people think about. And of course, that definitely does happen. But that's not how most rapes happen. Uh, and that's where I get into the 80-60-50 rule. 80% of all sexual assaults are committed by somebody the victim knows. Not a stranger in an alley, though that does happen. Um, by someone the victim knows, 80%. And in college, for those who attend college, that number goes to 90%. Hmm. Um, 60% of all sexual assaults don't happen in an alley or in a parking lot or in a white van, although they can, and they do. 60% of all sexual assaults happen in a residence, um, not in an alley. And then 50% of all sexual assaults involve consumption of the al of alcohol by the victim, the perpetrator, or both. Now, let's be clear. sexual uh, uh, Alcohol doesn't cause sexual assault at all. Um, perpetrators are responsible for their actions. Um, and it, it, sexual assaults happen whether or not someone's been drinking, um, but half of them do involve alcohol. So it is a coexisting factor in so many of these assaults. And uh, it's, it's really the risk factors I think people have to be aware of rather than believing in these myths. Yeah, definitely. Those misconceptions are huge and it helps you be more safe just recognizing what the statistics actually are so that you can prepare yourself. And let's say that you are in a situation where you're walking back to your car and you notice someone's following you and there's two situations. One is where they're just trying to rob your stuff. And the other situation is they're actually trying to physically kidnap you. What should you do in each of those situations? And I'd also you know, love to hear, uh, I love that you carry the safety knife on you or the safety pen, sorry. Yeah, um, so maybe yeah. you can just give some, some thoughts there. Sure. For, Sure. Um, so one of the chapters is street safety. Um, and I cover a whole heck of a lot in the street safety chapter because, you know, I, again, there's just basic skills and this is not uh, advanced stuff. Right. I mean, keeping your head on a swivel. I, I always yeah, think about that since I read it. Exactly. Like knowing your exit when you walk into a building, where's your emergency exit? I, it's a, it takes two seconds to do when you walk in. But if something happens, either a man-made disaster, a natural disaster, it's much, much harder to find that emergency exit when there's panic. So like very simple techniques that can keep you safer wherever your life travels take you. So, you know, when you're walking to your car at night, you should have your keys ready to go. I mean, you know, nowadays, you know, you have keyless entry. So it, it's in some cars, it's, it, you don't even have keys anymore. But 
always be ready to enter your car. Don't linger in your car. You get in your car, you should go. You shouldn't sit there, particularly at night, um, on your phone, checking emails, checking texts. And if you are going to do that, because some people, no matter what I say or write, they're going to do that. Um, just look around every 10 or 15 seconds. You know, you, it's not that we expect these things to happen, because I don't expect these things to happen. When I walk into a building and I look at for, I always look for my one emergency exit, I really don't think anything's going to happen. But nobody ever does. Nobody mm. ever does. No one, no one who was victimized ever thought they were going to be victimized. That happens to other people. And, you know, it can happen to anyone. So, you know, get in your car and go. Um, there are situations where, you know, someone's going to approach you and wants your iPhone, your wallet, whatever you have, your, your jewelry. And what I talk about in the book is, you know, those are very scary situations, uh, robberies. And um, you may be reluctant to, to, you know, part with something valuable, but material possessions, you know, can be replaced. None of us can. Our, our health, our, our lives, obviously. And so what I've told my own sons and what I say in the book is, you know, some people, because I, let me take a step back. Whenever I teach at schools on that topic, I always ask for a show of hands. How many of you, you're walking around and now you're on your iPhone or your phone and someone approaches you with a gunner and I can says, give it to me. How many of you would not give it? And I get about a, a quarter of the, of the young people raising their hand saying, I'm not giving it. Mm. And so I get this. And, and, and I'm sure adults are the same way. It's not just young people. And what I've said to my own sons and I, I, I say in the book is, you know, again, you can't be replaced. Your items can. So you really should think and be willing to give it away um, and, and hand it over. It's, you know, if you think your life may be in jeopardy, it's a whole other deal, though, if a bad guy, um, you think they approach you and you think they're just going to want your stuff. But instead, they want you. Come with me. Get in the car. You don't get hurt. Um, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hurt you. But you, you're leaving with me right now. And they stick a gun in your ribs or or some other threat of violence. And every situation is different. You cannot say one technique will always work. But every single self, like credible uh, safety expert, police officer, uh, in any sort of law enforcement. Uh, people who are in dignitary protection or, or, or other sort of sorts of uh, protection, physical protection field. They all say the same thing. You never go. You never leave. Because all you're going to do is you're going to create a second crime scene. The first, the first crime scene is going to be where you were abducted. And the second crime scene is when you go with that person, they want to do something that they can't do to you in public right there. And that's not going to be a good thing. And there's going to be a second crime scene. So the advice that I give in my book and that people I've interviewed who are credible on these topics have all said the same thing. You know, you don't have a good choice, right? You either fight or you go. Both choices suck. Mm -hmm. But the better choice out of those two bad choices is to fight, to yell, to scream, to run, to scratch. You do whatever you can and you don't go. You summon the courage right there to not go. And so that's the advice. Yeah. Yeah, you have that really compelling story of the girl who tries, someone tries to kidnap her and she literally like, you know, the guy grabs her sweatshirt, she slips out of her sweatshirt, he grabs her shoes, she slips out of her yeah. shoes, he scratches him, she escapes. 
And so yeah. it's, I, I think there is a lot of power, even if you're, you know, let's say a, a teen girl and you're dealing with a, a grown man, if you really give it your all, you know, you have a better chance of escaping than you might think. And, you know, there's also a lot of like, you know, law shows about the first 48, like it really is super dangerous to be kidnapped and they oftentimes don't end well. So you really yeah. are better off fighting it out. And it's interesting you bring up that story because, uh, first of all, there's the book has tons of stories. Every chapter mm -hmm. has multiple stories. I, you know, you try to give uh, examples, but they're all true stories. Everything in the book yeah. is an actual story of it happened to a young person. And sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't go well for them. Um, and yeah, that story really stood out to me as well. And and, and it's a, a story I've seen over and over that, you know, Again, sometimes it ends badly. I'm not saying it's always going to go this way. No one can say that. But it's it's interesting to me how often I read stories of people of all ages. When they're approached on the street, someone tries to take them. And when they fight back, um, it can be startling to the perpetrator, right? Some of them are not expecting someone to, to fight back. And that is, their, is the opportunity to escape. And in the story you're talking about, yeah, she had to fight and fight and fight and she got away and uh you know and the people who the, the victims who don't get away are never are never to blame obviously um it's a terrifying situation and um you know uh, who can say uh you know if, if they'd be able to summon the courage to fight back in that moment so no one should be blamed if they are unable to but it is definitely advisable to fight back on the spot totally yeah, and having something like a safety pen would be useful because I love that because it's something that even if you're like, you know, on an airplane or places where you're not allowed to have, let's say, like a taser or uh, pepper spray, you would still probably be allowed to have a pen. And that can be, you know, that could make the difference between defending yourself and not being able to defend yourself. Yeah, so I, I talk, obviously, I talk about that in the book as well. I get asked all the time as a prosecutor, I, I focus on street gangs mm -hmm. for my day job as a prosecutor. And, you know, there, there, there are times where I'm looking over my shoulder when I'm not on the job just because, you know, um, I treat everyone. Job. Yeah. yeah, at times it can be. And I, I, I try to treat everyone fairly uh, under the circumstances, reasonably. But, you know, you just, there's a certain types of folks that just no matter what I do, you know, I, I got to do my job. And so, you know, I don't want to carry a gun. I, I have no interest in carrying a gun. Uh, I don't want to carry a knife, but I carry my tactical pen. And, and, and for the, your, your listeners and viewers, a tactical pen is simply a, a steel, very rigid steel pen that has um, like a ball tip. Not, and now it's a writing, a functional writing instrument as well. And the ball tip is fixed. And so, you know, it, the, the, the pen tip retracts, but the it's such a hard uh, ball of steel on the tip of the pen that it can be used for self-defense purposes um even when it's not when, when you don't have uh, its use as a pen so i it's a, it's a yeah. it's a good, good kind of compromise there totally yeah and you can get it for ten dollars on amazon i just checked so it's really easy investment awesome so i want to bring it to the final section of your book which is about your digital footprint and staying safe online and we already touched on it a little bit, but maybe we can say a little bit about how your active and passive digital footprint are built throughout the course of your life and how 
in the past, you didn't have to worry as much about the dumb things you said and posted as a teenager, but now everything you do online follows you and how you should think about that as you're growing up and and then maybe what you can do if you do have some bad stuff in your digital history. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, as I mentioned, when we started, I was a troubled teen growing up. And again, I was a good kid. I got pivoted off path. If I were growing up today, um, I'm sure and, and having my struggles, I'm sure I would have done something that would have followed me into adulthood and, and, and you know, would have been traceable to me through my digital footprint and would have made it more difficult for me to turn my life around and get the job I always wanted, which would be a lawyer and then a prosecutor. So the stakes are great. And the moment anyone goes online, they're creating their digital footprint. And it's the trail of data that we leave in our wake as we click things and like things and share things, um, not just on social media, on the internet, uh, text messages, emails, everything. And you know, it can be a really good reflection of them or a not so good reflection of them. And um, you know, there are ways I talk about in the appendix, um, some ways to clean up your digital footprint. And we can, we can talk about a, a few of those. But the most important thing is to not make your footprint to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the ways I see, the, the main way I see young people mess up their footprint, or make, let's not say mess up, let, let, me, let me say make mistakes. Because mm-hmm. you, there, there's no mistake that you can't um, recover from. You know, I'm living proof of that. Um, there's no mistake that, you know, all hope is lost, um, but you want to avoid stepping in it if you can. And so I see young people that they, they, they share too much. And a lot of times those mistakes, you know, you, your generation, and, and, and you all know to have private accounts. Okay. Teenagers, they know to have private accounts. They know to have a Finstead account. Y'all are really clever. <laughs> and again, I know you're a, a bit older now, but um, the young, younger people of today, they're pretty clever about concealing things and making sure only their friends see it. The problems that they get into where they mess up their digital footprint is that they can be too trusting that the friend actually is a friend of me or the friend is not actually a friend at all or the boyfriend or girlfriend that they shared with that they thought they'd always be in a relationship ends up forwarding not just a nude, but it could be something cruel about a teacher and it, it makes its way around the school and so on and so forth. So um, the private accounts are a great idea, but people become too complacent in the private accounts. They think, well, it's a private account. I can just share what I want. That's not the case. Mm-hmm. So while I encourage people in the book, have a private account, don't shit share things in a private account that you wouldn't share publicly you're just sharing it to a smaller audience and what i also say is take it old school if you if you got something that you want to say about somebody you want to you want to say something uh directly to somebody just see them in person wait till you see them in person if you you don't just put it electronically because like you said earlier once you hit send it's gone forever you can never control that again so sometimes things are just better said in person. Um, and so, and I know that's just yeah, so foreign for people, for so many young people, I get it, but not everything has to be said in that moment. Some things can wait. 
Well, that's how the whole KGB and, and Russian government operates. They do everything with like verbally and that's why it's so hard to track what's actually going on. But, you know, that's because they're so right. aware of digital footprints. Right. They're and, aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be aware of it. And you have some really, uh, I mean, we don't have to get into all of them, but you have some really interesting case studies, too, of what happens. And I see this time and time again on social media and Twitter. Like one of the most common ones is when someone will talk trash about their job or their boss at work. And then the boss will like print out their tweets and say like you're fired like you can't be saying this type of stuff even if it's some fake account or there was also the harvard college students who had uh you know they were basically sharing memes about the holocaust and just really unsavory stuff and then they got their college admissions rescinded and so there's there's all these situations where in the blink of an eye if you make a bad decision and it becomes public then your whole course of your life could be steered off course and it could follow you around. Um, so let's say you do make a mistake. You do something terrible and, you know, page one Google search results are, you know, you did this horrible thing. Anyone who looks you up, what can you do to improve your digital footprint? Right. So, you know, they say Google is, is the new resume, right? So, and, and maybe some young people, I think most of them know what a resume is, but I don't even know if my sons know what a resume is. Maybe my oldest son does, but, but essentially, you know, for, for my generation and generations before, you know, them, you wanted to know about Jonathan Crystal. If I were applying for a job or maybe a college or something, I, you know, write up my experience and why you should hire me and what jobs I've had and so on and so forth. Well, you know, today, the Google search about someone is their resume. And so if something negative does show up about you on page one, you know, there are techniques complicated, more complicated than I can get in here. And even I, I don't get mm -hmm. into great details in the book. I give resources. But you can bury the bad with the good. So essentially, you may not be able to. There are situations where you can remove things, but most of the time you can't. But you, instead of having that show up on page one of a Google search, if you can layer in a bunch of good material in there, um, that may show up on page four. And the reality is most people who are Googling a person, they're not going to go past page one. I forget the statistic, but I think it's something like 80% of the people who are searching others on Google never make it past page one. Right. So you want to you bury it further along. And there are services that will do that for a fee. And there are ways an individual can do it, but they'd have to research it. And there are certain techniques they have to follow. And it takes time. I'm not saying it's easy, but it can be done um, when needed. Yeah, I also like your section in the book about having a positive digital footprint, because oftentimes it's perceived negatively. But if you did some bad things in the past, but then you start a sports blog and you're being active in a positive way or you have your own website, so anyone who searches your name will go to your website and you have the properly curated information there. Um, you know, all of those tactics are good. So it's, it's not just about getting rid of the negative. It's also about putting forward positive things into the digital Absolutely. ecosystem. It's a, it's, it's a huge part of it. And, you know, we're not talking about being phony. So, you know, young people have to know, you know, and I think, I think many do now, that, you know, employers and colleges who are going to go to college, they are going to be checking out your digital footprint. I hire people and I never hire anyone without doing 
a dive into their digital footprint as far as I can go, as deep as I can go. And I'm not unique. Employers and colleges are checking out people's footprints. So you want you have this wonderful opportunity. You know they're going to be checking. Put out some stuff. Put out some good stuff. Don't be phony. But put out the good things you're doing. Um, share things. You know, you got an award or you made honor roll or you did volunteer work. Put, put that out there. That makes you look great. And it's genuine to who you are. And they're going to be checking it. So and they expect to find something. If I don't right. find anything, if I'm doing a, a, a research into a candidate, uh, an employment candidate, and I find nothing, I'm a bit puzzled. I'm like, okay, why aren't I finding anything here? You know I'm going to be checking. Put something positive out there that's true to who you are because it can make the difference. When I, We all know what's competitive out there. And when I've narrowed down, when I'm going to hire a prosecutor, and it's narrowed down to two, and I can't, I'm looking for anything to differentiate them, okay? And if I see a couple things online that you've done, that are good reflection. Actually, this happened to me once. I did hire someone. I, I'll tell you really quickly. I had narrowed down a position to two prosecutors. I loved them both. I wanted to hire them both. I could only hire one, and I didn't know what to do. So as I was diving into their digital footprint, I saw, I came across some posts that one of the candidates had made three or four years ago, and they were serious-minded. They talk about civic duty. They talked about um, what's important right now in the city of Los Angeles. They talked about our values, his values, and that was it. That's yeah. what pushed him over the edge, and he got again. That's great. Awesome. Well, let's let's bring it home with the future scenarios now. So, what would you say is the worst-case scenario for today's teens growing up, as far as? their behavior, how they conduct themselves, and then we can get into the best, the best case for how they conduct themselves. Worst case scenario. Well, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, uncertainty is, is in many ways the worst scenario because, you know, people will have specific instances of unfortunate things that happen, but None of us know what the long-term ramifications are of, you know, digital footprints and social media accounts and uh, being tracked by, literally being tracked by our mobile devices and, mm. and our search uh, algorithms about us and our spending habits and how we like to spend our time being tracked online. Again, I mean, it's not a conspiracy. These things are happening. Right. But we don't know the long-term ramifications of that. What, this is the first generation that's going to be growing up in the digital age. We're the first, my generation of parents are the first parents who've had to parent these young people. We don't know what we're doing either. That's why I wrote the book. We're trying to figure it out too, right? So no one really has the answers and we won't have the answers for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Who can say, you know, um, how will this information be used? Will your digital footprint, you know, follow you when you're 70, it very well may, but we just haven't seen it before. We don't have the data on it. So I think it's, and I want to say, you know, young people today are smart and savvy, way smarter, generally speaking, than my generation. The, the sweet spot, the, the problem becomes, you know, when you're smart and savvy, sometimes you think you know more than you do. Hmm. And um, so, you know, it's easier to make a misstep when you think you know everything. When you when you know you don't know something, 
you may be more cautious. So, you know, to I think the worst case scenario, again, is this uncertainty that, that, that you know, um, we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be of the digital world and being a digital native like young people are. And um, we also, we just don't know um, <clears throat> what we don't know. And so to, to, one way you can help yourself and be safer is to learn what you can. I'm not, I'm not just saying this to plug my book, although it is definitely a plug for my book. Um, it's to round out your education with information that you're not going to be taught in school, or at least in most schools. To have an education beyond math and history and Instagram and those types of things, to know what your rights are, to know uh, about all there is to know about cyberbullying and, and sexual violence and what's sexual harassment and so on and so forth, so that you can help ensure that you're going to be a successful adult and something from your youth isn't going to follow you into adulthood. Definitely. Yeah, let's talk about the best case scenario. So. It seems to me like just sort of what we were talking about earlier, there could be two future paths when we think about the future. One is the, you know, in China, they have the social credit score, which is basically taking the digital footprint to a whole nother level where everything you do online is either a vote for or against your position as a good, good citizen in society. The other side seems to be the decentralized you know, blockchain where you have an anonymized account and maybe it's verified that they know this is a real citizen, a real person. It's not like a foreign actor or a bot, but it's anonymized and you can have that sort of full decentralized society. I'm curious if you have any thoughts of what would an ideal future scenario look like for the society that, our, that today's teens are going to grow up in? Best case scenario. Well, like I said before, you know, there there are certainly many mistakes young people make, but those are the same mistakes that my generation made and previous generations made. We all made mistakes, particularly as young people. The game changer now, obviously, is that when these mistakes are made digitally, it can, it can create a long-term ripple effect. But what is different about, at least from my experience, about this generation, young people today, tweens, teens, young adults, is you all are smarter, you're savvier, um, and you're, you're, you understand issues uh, about uh, sexual violence that we didn't have any clue about. You all are smarter about uh, racial inequality, uh, uh, financial inequality, um, you know, uh, police brutality. You all, there's, you all are so much more aware of these issues. And I think the future is very bright in that regard for young people. I think if you can avoid stepping in it as a young person, which you know, you can only do so much, um, educating, educating yourselves about things you don't know to help ensure you don't step in it, or maybe just help a friend, even if you're not gonna step in it, you know, uh, maybe you can help a friend who's having struggle, whether it's an abusive relationship or they're engaging in sexual harassment and they're not aware of their, the, how their actions are coming across. But I think the, the future is incredibly bright for, for, for many in this young generation who are young today because they're savvy, they're smart, and they're really sensitive to issues that my generation, we just weren't very aware of. Um, and I think when they can really uh, balance out their digital footprint with with good information and, and things that are serious minded Their chances of success for the long term are even better. 
So I actually feel good. My my yeah. sons are good dudes. They know more than I did. Their friends know more than I did. You know way more as a young adult than I did. So so you know, it, I think the future is very bright, and, I, and I'm optimistic. And you know, my book wasn't written to scare people. The topics can be a bit daunting. They can be intimidating. My book was written to give people peace of mind. So they just have information. We've talked a couple times about making informed decisions. I think young people are really good at making informed decisions when they have the information they need to do so. So bring yeah. it back to that, trying to give the information because you all are, are, are set. I think you guys have very promising future. Yeah, I also, I, I think that because the information is so out in the open and we can all see each other's digital footprints, there might be a greater level of acceptance for the fact yeah. that people are multifaceted People make mistakes, people change, even if their digital footprint is forever. And so maybe that, maybe we are in sort of the growing pains of having information overload right now, but maybe we'll get beyond those growing pains and come to a more enlightened place in the future. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, it's interesting because I think young people, not in all situations, of course, can be more forgiving of other young people or, or, or their contemporaries, um, sometimes more so than parents. Parents sometimes, you know, because they can't relate or for whatever reasons, other reasons, may not be forgiving, but you may forgive your friend because you are living the same experience your friend has. Mm. Or as adults, we're just, we're a little bit disconnected. So I think that's a really good point. You just yeah. Yeah. My wife has a, like her mom is still mad at the one friend that like didn't invite her to a sleepover. Like, isn't that that girl who didn't invite? Like she still has the grudge, even though Maria's totally right. over it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. You know, if you would have asked me this, are you know, uh, it would have been different than what's today. And if you would ask me, you know, four years ago, you know, before, you know, before the election, the presidential election, it would have been radically different again. But we're, we've got this election coming up in November. We're in the midst of coronavirus, um, COVID-19. And so um, <clears throat> there's so many uh, unknowns. So I'll go back to what I said before. It's the uncertainty. I, I don't know. Except I'll tell you, it's a really competitive world. It's tough out mm. there. And, you know, I've been successful as a prosecutor for nearly 20 years, but I wouldn't even get an interview today if I applied for my job. It's just gotten way more competitive. Um, and I think about that sometimes when I'm hiring people, I'm thinking, you know, I got 120 resumes for one position. Like, wow. It, so, so I think, um, you know, we don't know what the, the ripple effect, uh, uh, the continuing effect of the economy is going to be for the next six months, the next five years. Who can say? Um, a lot will depend on what happens with the um, presidential election in a couple months. So I'll just say there's a lot of uncertainty now more than probably ever that I've experienced, at least in recent memory. Um, but... Uh, I do. I really do get encouraged when I am around young people. Again, I teach at a lot of schools. Um, obviously, I'm interfacing interfacing with my son's friends and their friends at times. Uh, and I, I'm encouraged that, that 
so many young people are enlightened about some of these serious, serious issues and, um, and are very active. You know, there's activism. We, we weren't activists when we were young, but, but so many young people are. So although there's a lot of uncertainty, um, I think it's going to pivot to things that are really positive, no matter what the economy is like. No matter what happens in the in November election, I think things the young generation is going to make sure that this country pivots in the right direction sooner or later. That's great. I'm with you. I, I'm optimistic as well for the future. So finally, where can people find you? And do you have any final thoughts for listeners or any, any final words you'd like to share? They can find me uh, at what they don't teach team team.com wtdtt.com um or they can email me at jonathan what they don't teach teams.com um and my book is available you know at all the booksellers amazon barnes and noble etc um and you know i always like hearing from people you know what their experiences are particularly as it relates to topics in my book um you know when things go right when things go wrong but how we can correct them i always love hearing you know people's stories so you know folks can feel free to share those with me um and you know my final thoughts are um you know just have fun you know have fun but but make informed decisions and i keep saying that because people are going to choose what they're going to choose and i'm not here to tell them otherwise and and i'll bring it back to my own sons which is how we started the reason i wrote this book you know, I always felt, you know, <clears throat> that if my sons made a mistake, I mean, a big mistake, and it was something that I could have told them about before, hey, watch out for, let's say, call it a landmine, watch out for this landmine. If I tell them to watch out for the landmine, but they step on it anyway, that's on them. I, I mean, they've made their decision. But if I had never told them about the landmine, but I knew where it was and they stepped on it, I was going to feel really guilty hmm. uh, and badly because I could have helped them make a decision. So just bring it back to that. Make informed decisions. Do what you're going to do. Make the choices you're going to make, but know what you're doing and know the, the pros and the cons before you decide to do anything you're going to do and then have fun and, you know, things are going to happen or not, but, you know, go through life. Don't Don't beat yourself up. We all make mistakes. And uh, things will always turn out for the better. Just ride it out. Ride out the bad time. Things will get better. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end it. And, you know, thank you so much, not only for this interview, but for writing the book. And we really hardly even scratched the surface of what's in there. So I would really encourage all the listeners to go buy it. I think it comes out on October 6th. October 6th, yeah. And, yeah, highly recommend it. And thank you again, Jonathan, for joining us. And we'll Thanks, Madam. Keep doing what you're doing. The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. The past, the present, and the future, baby. What's the world coming to? The past, the present, and the future.
If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Hence the Future. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.